So I'm not sure about you, but, uh, you know, the more and more as the years go by and I try to live out my faith as a Jesus follower, I'm finding it, it's hard. It's getting harder and harder and harder. Like, go to whatever coffee shop you like to uh, visit, uh, you know, walk down the street, hit up Starbucks, whatever it is. I know Starbucks is a bad word to Dan, but whatever that coffee shop is, you go there, right? And say the barista asked you, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, like, you know, like they do, right? Uh, and you started getting into a conversation. I, I, I believe in our moment, in our cultural moment, it's easier to talk about maybe your sexual orientation. It's easier to talk about that you are maybe exploring uh, new age spirituality or you're becoming a Buddhist. Or uh, it's easier to talk about the hockey game. Whatever it is, than it is to, uh, to say, to, to express that you follow Jesus in our cultural moment, right? A, lo a lot of writers that are talking about this say that when it comes to Christianity, there's uh, tons of labels being thrown out there. Labels such as extreme, such as irrelevant, such as intolerant. Two writers and researchers by the name of David Kinsman and Gabe Leons, they write in this book, Good Faith. Um, it, it, it's quoting uh, how millennial Christians experience the world around them as Christians. But I believe that this applies to anybody in this room any generation trying to live out their Christian faith in this moment that we're living in. This is what it says. Millennial practicing Christians in particular are getting hit from all sides. They're more likely than other practicing Christians to feel the negative repercussions of their faith in today's society. Most feel persecuted and misunderstood, and many say that they are afraid to speak up. I remember a couple uh, years ago when this hit me in a new way for the first time. As you, some of you know, we used to live out in uh, Ontario. And when we moved into this neighborhood, my wife's really good at getting to know the neighbors and introducing our kids to their kids and just making friends in general. And so like she does, like our kids were outside playing. And this is one of those neighborhoods where, you know, everybody goes and plays street hockey outside in the street and plays basketball and you get to know your neighbors. It's like one of those neighborhoods. And so naturally, we started a relationship with uh, all the different families on our block. And one of the moms came up to my wife and she told me about this conversation later and just was ecstatic, was like really warm uh, that we were a new family that moved into the block. She invited us over to have a pool party. And she went on to tell about like they do this movie and pool party thing in the neighborhood at their house every summer. And we have to come, like our kids have to come. And the conversation was fine and it was pretty normal, pretty amiable. And then my wife said it took a bit of a turn. Like any conversation does, it moves to like, okay, so what do you do? And so my wife, being very polite, asked her first, like, hey, what do you do? And she talked about being a, a Reiki instructor and that she has a studio down in the basement of her house. And then she invited my wife to come over so that she can cleanse her chakra down in the basement, and whatever that means. I don't know what that is. But my wife, being polite, she politely declined and said like, no, uh, she, she doesn't need that uh, in whatever nice way she did. But uh, the conversation went on and like it does, it moved into like, oh, so what do you do? Or what does your husband do? And that's always where the conversation gets really interesting. And so my wife, 
uh, very boldly just said like, oh, well, we're Christians. My, my husband's a pastor in a local church uh, in the area, and uh, he's one of the pastors on staff. And so there's a couple of follow-up questions. She was asking like, okay, so what do you mean by you're a Christian? What do you mean by you follow Jesus? Where my wife just simply answered, uh, well, we believe that Jesus is the true, one true God. And she started to explain the gospel to her. And just like that, it was a 20-something minute conversation or so. It ended off really nicely. And we thought we were invited to a party. But as the week kind of went on, my wife was texting this woman, trying to figure out like details to this party, if they wanted to hang out. And this person just totally just ghosted her out of the blue. And it was just really awkward and weird because we were wondering the whole time, like, oh, is there something that we did? And uh, our kids heard about this party, right? And like any kid does, they were asking us over and over again, like, hey, mom and dad, when are we going to go over to this person's house for this pool party? When are we going to go over to this person's house for the pool party, right? And so finally, we're like, hey, we don't know when this party is or if we're going to go or if we're invited. Because, uh, again, this person was just totally ghosting us. And so our son, Mason, uh, he's pretty bold. And since this couple just lives a couple houses down, he's like, okay, I'm going to go ask. So I went and watched on the porch where this little, at the time, I think he was like, what, eight? Goes up, knocks on the door with his childlike innocence, and just the mom answers the door, and he straight up asks her, hey, hey, what is this pool party happening? And I was on the porch of our house, and I could just tell, oh, it was just really awkward. And I, I'm glad my son Mason just wasn't aware of the social dynamic that was going on in that moment. But the mom just did not give him a straight answer. She didn't want to say like, no, like you're not invited to the party. But at the same time, she didn't want to say like the party wasn't happening because she knew that would be a lie. And so that evening, eight o'clock rolled around. Again, we're like just a couple houses down, right? So we're in our backyard barbecuing. And sure enough, we hear kids splashing. We hear music bumping. Uh, you know, people talking loudly, uh, lights on, everything. And my kids, oh, my heart just sank in that moment. They like turned to me and they're like, why, like, why weren't we invited to this party? And I didn't tell them this, but I told my wife later, like, I knew in that moment, the Holy Spirit just like told me, like, it was because we were following Jesus. Like she just, there's something about that, that she didn't like. Some of you in this room, probably resonate with that experience. Maybe you've had it yourself to some degree. Right now, a lot of Christian thinkers, uh, when it comes to describing the days that we're living in, they use this word exile to describe this cultural moment we're living in. To live in exile or to be in exile is to live in a culture that has values that don't line up with your own or your faith that you're practicing. These values push against your faith, and at times, as I just told you, create moments of discomfort, of uncomfortable tension. Most Christians today in culture know that the values of our culture definitely don't line up with the values of our faith, what it means to practice following Jesus in this moment. And although, although it's easy to look around at the culture around us and see the pain, see the suffering, see all these things that can rub us the wrong way, and to be discouraged, to be asked the question like, where is the hope? 
But here's the beauty of the biblical narrative. Here's the beauty of the Bible, the story that we're living in right here and now. Over and over and over again, when it comes to the people of God, we find them in a similar situation. We find them in exile. We find them in a culture that has values that doesn't line up with their own. And in some way, this is the moment that we have just read. When James says in verse 1, James, as, jo- as uh, Dan said, the little brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he writes this letter and he, he starts off, James, I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. The 12 tribes scattered among the nations. These are the people that he is writing to. These are the Jewish Christians that were part of his church in Jerusalem that we see in Acts 8, after the stoning of Stephen, they're dispersed, they're scattered all along the Roman Empire. And knowing this timeline, knowing that this happened right in Acts 8, scholars say it's easy to determine that this is probably the first New Testament manuscript that we have. This is the first letter. This is the first writing on the, in the latter half of our Bible, Bible that we are uh, privy to. And here in Palestine, in this context that he's writing into, there's probably about 2 million or so people living under the rule of the Romans. They're divided by region. They're divided by religion. They're divided by politics. And this Jewish people living in this time, they were frustrated. They were angry. They were angry at this overwhelming power of this alien nation, Rome, that was uh, trying to force them into this way of life that they were living in Roman culture. So followers of Jesus in this moment were trying to figure out what does it look like to be faithful and fruitful in that cultural moment that they were living in, in that place, in a culture where their values graded up against them. So in an effort, to resist being formed into this Roman culture around them, this is what happened. Different groups, different sects of Jewish uh, people uh, gathered up, arranged themselves in a way to try to combat the Roman culture in the best way that they knew how. So just to give you an idea, okay? Bruce Shelley, an historian, uh, talks about these different groups. One of the groups as you might know, are called the Pharisees. They emphasize those Jewish traditions and practices that set them apart from pagan culture. Their names mean separated one. They felt like this group, the Pharisees, they felt like the best way to deter the formation into Roman culture was to practice every detail of the Jewish law. And also they had an extreme intolerance of people they considered ritually unclean. So their piety and patriotism won respect among the people. Next to them, there was this other group, okay? There was a group of Jews that found Roman rule a distinct advantage. So among them were members of Jerusalem's aristocracy. They're rich. This is a group of people that James will see over and over again in this book talk to, to refer to. Because they're a a small group of wealthy, pedigreed families that came uh, from this group came the high priests and the lesser priests who controlled the temple. 
Many of them enjoyed the sophisticated manners and fashions of Greco-Roman culture. Some even took on Greek names. Their interests were represented by this conservative political party. This group was known as the Sadducees. Another group was called the Zealots. They were bent on armed resistance to all Romans in the fatherland. They looked back two centuries to the glorious days of the Maccabees when religious zeal combined with ready sword was there to overthrow this pagan empire, the Greeks, the Greek overlords at the time. So in this moment, the hills of Galilee often concealed a number of these guerrilla bands ready to ignite and revolt to destroy some symbol of the Roman authority in Palestine. The last group were the Essenes, who had little or no interest in politics or warfare whatsoever. Instead, what they did, they thought the best way to resist, to rebel against the Roman culture was to withdraw to the Judean wilderness, believing the temple of Judaism to be hopelessly compromised. There in the wilderness, they isolated themselves in these monastic communities. They studied the scriptures and prepared themselves for the Lord's kingdom, which they believed would dawn at any moment. But James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, presents to those people living in that culture and presents to us today living in this culture a fifth way. Another way to resist the culture around us. And as we go through this book in this couple of months, we're going to find out what that way is. It's the Jesus way. It's the Jesus way. It's what we are calling this series a beautiful resistance. What we see him emphasize over and over again, that although it's not explicit to the book, that he says that if you believe the gospel, if you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this is how you should live your life. That's what this book is all about. I love James because he's direct. He's to the point. He doesn't mince words, right? If you're like me, I'm a very practical guy. Sometimes I'm like, hey, don't explain it to me. Just get to the point. Like, just tell me what to do. And if that is you in the room this morning, you'll love James. James is all about telling us how to live out this life in a practical way. What to do. It's an earthy spirituality, I like to call it. And so I, 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 I'm, I'm going to get into this book and and. and parse out for you just these commands that he has over and over again. So getting into it, into this letter, right away off the bat, as I said, James is direct and he starts off with this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I'm going to be honest with you, sketching out this sermon series, knowing that this is where we're going to start this whole series, like, you know, with this whole idea of trials and suffering. I was in Dan's office this week and I was like, man, I'm not looking forward to preaching this sermon, right? Because think about what he's saying here, right? Consider it pure joy. One translation puts it like this, because in the original Greek, the rhetoric is a little different. So you can read it like this. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. 
Like when I'm reading this, I'm like the audacity that James must have to communicate to this audience in this way. To say this, to, to, to think that this would be encouraging by any means, right? Consider it nothing but joy when you're facing trials, when you are suffering. Like being your pastor, knowing the different things that you are going through in this community. I was thinking about the different scenarios in my head, right? This is like me coming up to, to Ian and being like, Ian, you know the chronic pain that you struggle with week in and week out? Consider that an occasion for joy, right? Or my friends, Marcus and Morgan here. Like, you know the diagnosis that you got of your son and his eyesight? Consider that a place where you can find joy, that you can rejoice, right? Or if I went up to uh, Dan's wife, Laurel, some of you know, she, she is struggling with an autoimmune disease, right? It's like I go up to her and be like, hey, Laurel, you know, as you struggle with that autoimmune disease, count it all joy, right? It doesn't make sense. It comes across as inconsiderate, unempathetic, right? Who would say that to someone? And I'm trying to get into the, the, the head of James, right? Because when he is writing this letter, he is writing to this audience, this, these Jewish Christians that are facing persecution. They're struggling with poverty. These words here, trials of many kinds in the original language communicates, as commentators say, that there's a variety of things that are happening in this church. There's a variety of trials that this Jewish community is facing. External trials, and even internal trials that lead to temptation. And James is saying, consider it all joy. Like, I don't know how <laughs> strong the wine was back then, but it's like James had one too many glasses as he was writing this letter, right? It's like, what were you thinking? But this is why this idea grates up against me. This is why this idea grates up against most of us in this culture, right? This is why I wasn't uh, inspired to preach this passage to you. Because living in this culture, right? Living in this culture that we are in, culture is essentially invisible to us. You have to understand that. Culture is like um, water that a fish swims in, right? If you ask the fish, well, like, what's water? They'd be like, what do you mean, what's water? right? It's so invisible to them, it's, but it surrounds them. That's what culture is. It surrounds you and you don't even realize it sometimes. And the result is that we are soaked in culture and the culture that we are soaked into in this very moment tells us at all costs, avoid trials, avoid suffering, avoid misfortune of any kind, right? You just look at media, social media, whatever, YouTube, right? My mom uh, and dad, they love watching YouTube. And over and over again, my mom will come after, uh, up to me down in the kitchen after she watched whatever YouTube video about some juice like that cleans your liver and avoids liver disease. And she's like, Ben, you should drink this. I'm like, yes, sure, mom. Great, right? But how many of those videos, right? They're like, health videos telling you how to live your best life, avoid disease, avoid getting sick, how to anti-age or whatever that means, right? Like our culture constantly bombards us with the message that there's absolutely nothing good for you when you suffer. But 
This is what James is trying to get. James, in the language he is using, he is saying to us that, yeah, it's okay. It's okay if we try to avoid suffering. There's nothing wrong in that. James is saying that we shouldn't look for suffering. We don't have to go after trial. In fact, if you look at the original language, James is saying, he's saying we should, uh, when the, the suffering comes, right, we face trials of many kind. What he is saying to us is that when we read this word face, it's unexpected. That's how trials and suffering are, right? They come into your life in the most unexpected moment, the most unexpected time. That's what James is saying. He's trying to communicate to us these trials are unexpected, but at the same time, it's something that tests you. It tests the person by taking them to the end of themselves and beyond the means of being able to deal with it themselves. That's what trials do. Again, it's, it's not wrong to try to avoid suffering, to use the God-given wisdom that you are given to avoid something from happening to you. Because listen, I've said this before and I'm going to say this again. In order to view suffering in the right way, we have to use the lens of the Bible. We have to get back into the great gospel narrative. We have to go back to Genesis and starting in Genesis, we realize suffering doesn't come from God, but is a result of the fallen world we live in. The evil world we live in that's infected by sin. Right? When we read Genesis 1 to 3 uh, for, for, uh, for yourself, like you will understand that God makes the world and it is good. It's perfect. It's void of sin, suffering, and evil. But Adam and Eve, instead of trusting God, they try to become like God by eating from the, uh, the tree of uh, fruit of good and, uh, knowledge of good and evil. And the consequences of that action is that they leave paradise and they enter a world outside of the Garden of Eden that is full of suffering, evil, infected by sin. Hence, as we live our lives out on this earth, we will be affected by the climate of sin, evil, and suffering that is all around us. This was never God's original creation. God hates the pain and the troubles of this life, the trials that humans experience. And so should we. We should feel the same way that God feels about the things, the suffering, the trials that we experience. It grieves his heart to see his children suffer in this way. And like any good father who can't stand to watch their child suffer, he came down to hurt earth himself to do something about it. He came down to earth in the person of Jesus and through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he does something about it. He makes a way to us to enter back into relationship with him. And this is what makes Jesus trustworthy. This is what helps us realize that he can not only just relate to what we're going through in this moment, he's a person that we can trust as we're walking through whatever that season of suffering it is. Because he's experienced it himself, both as a person that suffers, or even when you see one of your loved ones suffer, he knows at the deepest level what you're going through, and he cares. He cares. And this is the danger when facing trials or suffering in this life, our natural inclination as human beings is not to find joy in those moments, 
but is to doubt. That's the natural inclination of us as human beings. It's to doubt. Suffering will make you doubt God's love. That's a natural response. That is okay. Even David, a man after God's own heart, the Bible says, in Psalm 13.1, in a season of suffering, he writes this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? In the press of life, we, like the psalmist, often wonder, God, where are you? Why aren't you relieving the suffering that I'm going through? Do you really care? Why are you waiting to do something about this situation? I've told you, in my own seasons of suffering as a pastor, I've come to moments of doubt. I've come to moments that I've asked these similar questions, but that's okay. I love how uh, one writer, Kathleen Norris, says it in uh, Christianity Today. She puts it like this. Our faith has an earthy honesty that allows to us to pierce through the lie of false spirituality and holy talk. To see that we must be honest with our human frailty before we are holy. Not the other way around. God knows us and meets us in the frailty, weakness, and dirtiness of the human condition. So then here's the question. How do you find joy in your suffering? How do you get to that place and that unexpected trial where you can rejoice or experience joy? Well, 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 James gives us a reason. He gives us the answer in verse three to four where he writes, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, James provides the reason that every follower of Jesus can take and use to filter when viewing whatever trial you are facing in this world so that you are able to experience joy in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trial. And it starts with understanding this. It comes down to what you know. That's what he's saying to this audience. He's speaking to this original audience in a way of that he assumes they know what he's talking about. He's like, you guys know. You guys know what I am talking about. You know. He's saying the ability and the capacity to change your perspective, to view your suffering in a new way, to view it and move it to seeing God's grace in the midst of it foremost is based on knowledge. And that knowledge starts first and foremost with understanding and believing the good news of Jesus. That again, because of his life, death, and resurrection, in that event is the great reversal of suffering. In that event, what was meant to harm Jesus was used for the good of the world. That even living on this earth, even though it comes with pain, sadness, loss, physical suffering, mental, emotional suffering, heartache, broken relationships, as Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The resurrection shouts at us that your pain and your suffering, they don't get the last word. They don't get the last word. They don't get the final say. There is hope. That's what our faith is in. Our faith is in this hope. That's the faith that James is talking about. That's the faith that moves and produces, as he says, perseverance. 
This word means a single-mindedness, a focus. See, as it produces perseverance in your life in the midst of this trial, it, it produces this focus that helps us focus on what really is important in this life, what really matters. It helps us align our priorities. It removes distraction. It helps us stand in that faith, trusting God. But listen, without you surrendering your life to Jesus, without you believing in the good news of the gospel, all suffering and evil is, is, it's meaningless. It's pointless. Apart from Jesus, there's no redeeming factor in the suffering of this world. There's no meaning or purpose to be found in it. Listen, humans are meaning-seeking creatures. I've said this before. We all the time are telling stories to make sense of our lives, coherent narratives of the life we're living to make sense of it all. This is how we are wired. And one main inter interruption to that narrative that we all live, no matter how you choose to live your life, no matter what faith you have, is suffering. And knowing this, the world outside of us, the culture around us, different religions, knowing this, trying to figure out a coherent narrative, knowing this, Buddhist and Eastern spirituality folk look at suffering and the narrative they tell to give it meaning is that it's an illusion. The Western culture that we live in tells a story that looks at suffering, as I said, as an absolute unmitigated curse. But the narrative we hold on to as Jesus followers in the gospel is that we look at suffering not as an illusion but something extremely real that a lot of us in this room have experienced so real that it took God the God of the universe to move to come off of his throne to come down to earth and to once and for all do something about it changing it from a devastating interruption to the possibility of it becoming a point of redemption, transformation, a point that we can experience new life, infusing it with hope. Paul says it like this in Romans 8, 38. And we know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, even though we experience evil and suffering, God can take it and use it for our good. God can take that evil thing that's happening to you and use it for our betterment so that we can become the best versions of ourselves. And that best version of yourself is that version that reflects Jesus most accurately. That's what James is talking about. That's what James is talking about when he says in verse 1-4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, this is God's goal for you as a human being. This is what he's trying to bring you to, completeness, maturity, so that you don't lack anything. This idea that James is trying to convey to us is summed up in this one word, okay? In the original language, this word complete or mature is known as this teleos, teleos. It's this big word that contains a lot of meaning. But what read this verse in this way. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be teleos. Teleos is the main 
theme throughout this book that we're going to come over again and again in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 5. This is the main theme of the book of James, and it can be translated in many ways. To just give you an idea of all the meaning that this one word, teleos, contains, here's a couple definitions. Okay, it means morally perfect. It means genuine or being true. It means physically perfect. It means being completed or finished. It means being mature in one's behavior. It means being an adult. It means being initiated like one inducted into the believing community. But one word that sums it up, which is my favorite word, is this. It means wholeness. Wholeness. How how much talk in our culture nowadays is there about becoming a whole human being, right? A holistic approach to being able to integrate your spirituality, your, your mental health, and all those different aspects, right? This is God's goal for us. It's, it's our wholeness to be whole. But the biblical definition of wholeness, to be whole, is to be like Jesus. That is the ultimate goal. And again, we say it here at PKC, Jesus isn't just our savior, but he is also our model. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 puts it like this. These, again, talking about suffering, have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Suffering can be repurposed to be a refining fire that purifies and molds us into the image of Jesus. Jesus is what it looks like to be truly human, to truly live this life, to be whole. This gives God glory. Anytime that this happens, anytime uh, a human being reflects the image of Jesus, it gives God glory. And glory and suffering are always tied together. We need to get that. Because Jesus' greatest glory came through his greatest suffering. His greatest glory came through the cross. And Jesus didn't die on the cross so you didn't have to. Jesus died on the cross to show you how. That's the call of discipleship, isn't it? To come, take up your cross, and follow me. Listen, if you're a Christian, you need to understand this. Yes, sin is the source of evil and suffering in this world. And sometimes suffering and trials can come into our lives when we sin, when we rebel against God. I know in my life, you know, sometimes when I, I, when I sin, when I was running away from God, suffering was used to bring me to rock bottom so that I understood that I needed a Savior, that I needed God in my life. And sometimes God repurposes the suffering and trials that we get ourselves into to move us to that point where we understand we need a Savior. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We need to surrender our lives to him. But as a Christian, 
if you are following Jesus, suffering as a Christian isn't a punishment for your mistakes. Suffering isn't because of a certain sin you committed. If you're a Christian, God has sent all your punishment on to Christ. All his wrath for you fell onto the heart of Jesus and was swallowed up and absorbed there in that place. It disappeared forever. He has no wrath, wrath left for you because when he looks at you, he sees your life hidden in Christ and he sees Jesus's holiness. He sees Jesus's righteousness and he applies that to you as a follower of Jesus. So now you are free to view your suffering not as God crushing you, but an evil thing that God can take and use for you to be made to look more like Jesus. You are free to see suffering as it is happening to you, not merely afterwards, in a way that only gospel faith produces, as something that does not touch your joy for what you have lost in your suffering, be it your comfort, health, wealth, or so on, is where, where that's not where your joy is found, right? Your joy is found in the hope of Jesus. This is the joy James is talking about. This is the way that we can experience joy in our suffering. This is what James is trying to remind that audience back then and, and remind us today to remember, to reflect on. Because here's the beauty of the gospel. Because as a follower of Jesus, the evil and suffering that comes at you to undo you can be a place of a powerful encounter with the spirit of Jesus. And in that moment, instead of that suffering undoing you, it can remake you into the best version of yourself. So for those of you who don't follow Jesus, I leave you with this quote by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says this, when we want to be something other than the thing that God wants us to be, we must be what want what, in fact, will not make us happy. So PKC, this morning, as we close, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature complete, not lacking anything.